Well, good to be back. I know some people are still drifting back after holidays, but uh, 1st of September, or 2nd of September, first Sunday in September, always feels a significant moment. So I have a kind of a mix of excited anticipation about this next season, and I want to be speaking about that this morning. At the same time, I guess also, as I guess many of us do, for the slight kind of, ah, oh, summer's going to be over. I like summer. It's uh, trusting God for a good season. One thing it'd be great just to pray for is that Adam and Basha are getting married on Thursday. <laughs> getting married here. Remind me of the time, and I will be here because I'm taking it, but... We'll, 12. I will definitely be here at 12 o'clock, if not before. Um, so all are welcome. 12 o'clock here, if you can make it, on Thursday. But it'd be great just to pray for Adam and Basha. So if those are around, why don't you just lean out, rest your hands on their shoulders, and I'll lead us in prayer for them. Lord, we thank you so much for what we anticipate this week with Adam and Basha getting married. We thank you, Lord. We anticipate good things for them. But Lord, thank you for what we believe marriage points to. It's a prophetic sign of the relationship between you and your people, and I pray for Adam and Basha that their marriage would, would display that. It would point to the reality of Christ's love for his people. So Lord, we pray for a blessed day on Thursday, Lord, we pray for blessing on their marriage, and we pray for blessing through their marriage. I ask you to favor them in this, King Jesus. pray you'd help them these last few days, all the things that need to be done, getting ready for the day itself. Grace upon them, Jesus grace upon all that this new marriage means, all that it will mean. In your name we ask it, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I've only been here one Sunday in August, and that Sunday I was actually up at Alder Road for the whole service, just popped down here at the end. But I hear you've had a great time here at 502, and it sounds like I should go away far more often, because loads of visitors come and I'm not here, and it's all great. Uh, Grace and I were not here last Sunday because we were in St. Louis in the States. We'd been asked by a church called Crosspoint to uh, go and do a weekend with them. It's a church which is beginning to explore partnership with Advance, a larger church, a couple of thousand people, kind of a suburban American type setting. If you've ever been to America and been to those kind of churches, so a couple of thousand people, uh, a big campus, huge car park like they have in the States, auditorium seating 1,200 people, uh, and we had great weekend with them. Uh, I spoke five times over, the, over Saturday, Sunday with them, and Grace did a couple of sessions as well as part of that weekend, and we felt very uh, encouraged by them and hope we encouraged them as well. And then uh, Monday, Tuesday, we were with Jubilee Church in St. Louis, which was as the New Frontiers Church, which we, with which we have a long-standing friendship. Uh, some of you may remember from way back in the past, those of you who've been around a long time, John and Land Linda Lanfman, who came to us a couple of years. John started that church in St. Louis. It's now led by a friend of mine called Brian Mary, And uh, we spent time with them and their staff team and emerging leaders uh, doing stuff with them. And it was, it was great to be back there and, and uh, be with those two churches. I've been to St. Louis a few times because I've visited Jubilee Church a number of times. It was Grace's first time and uh, it was a pretty full schedule so we didn't have much time to do lots of touristy stuff. But we had one free afternoon when I took uh, Grace to the St. Louis Arch. St. Louis isn't a particularly tourist destination city. It's Midwest. It's incredibly hot, incredibly humid in the summer, so not very nice in the summer, and in the winter it's freezing cold. So it's not a place you really go to for a holiday, uh, and it's also quite a tough uh, t city, which has had a, 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 a tough history, gone through a lot of trouble. But the one thing it is known for is the St. Louis 
Gateway Arch, which is this vast steel arch which was built in the 60s as a, as a landmark, but also to commemorate the fact that St. Louis was known as the Gateway to the West. It was the city where people would come to begin their, uh, their, their, their route out into the West, the great expansion West that happened in the States in the mid-19th century. It was where Lewis and Clark began their exploration looking for a route through to the West Coast, and then the pioneers followed after with those incredible trails out to California and the Oregon Trail and the rest. And so they built this arch, the Gateway Arch, the Gateway to the West. And as we were there, I, reminded, I was reminded about how and why nine years ago we changed our name as a church to Gateway Church. It was because we felt the Lord speaking to us about us being a gateway to the kingdom of God for people in Paul and Bournemouth. And felt again, as we come into this new term, this new season of church life, the kind of push of that, that that's what we're called to be, a gateway to the kingdom of God for people. And uh, that needs to be our prayer and our desire. September's also a time of changes. If you've got kids, they start back at school a different year from the year they were in before. It's a time of change for us and our family. Susie, who's normally here, but she's in the band up at Alder Road this morning. She's leaving us tomorrow. She's going down to Brighton, and she's going to be doing a, a year serving Emmanuel Church in Brighton. Uh, so you won't see her around except in the holidays over the next year. And uh, we're going we're gonna to miss her a lot. And also this is an important Sunday for in Lindsay Kennedy uh, because this morning they've got their first kind of informal Sunday gathering in Glasgow. So Nathaniel's up there this weekend on business and he's going to be there with them this morning. Uh, Ian was with us. He popped down this week and he had lunch with us in the office on Friday. Had more people added to them in the month that he's been there. They've now got a group of about 30 people who are saying they're committed. So beginning to gather this morning kind of informally looking to launch the church properly in January. So Really exciting what's happening there. Let's keep praying for God's blessing on them. Let's pray that they would be a gateway to the kingdom of God in Glasgow as well. Amen? Right, we are this morning in the book of Acts. If you used to come here before the summer, you may remember that we were looking at the book of Acts. We did a six or seven week series, the first six chapters of the book of Acts, which we finished on June the 10th, which feels like a very long time ago, and where we finished was Acts 6, verse 7. The word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. A great high point, the church in Jerusalem, the first church growing with extraordinary power. And uh, what we saw about this first church, described for us in the first six chapters of the book of Acts, is that this is a, a group of people who have been transformed by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured out on a small gathering of people in an upper room in Jerusalem, completely changes them. They're filled with power, they're filled with confidence, they go onto the streets, start proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. 3,000 people respond in faith to Jesus that day. It's a transformed people, and it's a church that grows rapidly in number. 3,000 that first day, and then many being added day by day to their number. As a church, it's also characterized by signs and wonders. It says in Acts 2.43 that many signs and wonders were being done by the hands of the apostles. So this is, this is a church which is growing at an incredible pace, and this is a church which is seeing extraordinary 
manifestations of the Spirit's presence, signs of God's favor and God's blessing. It's also a church which is growing deep. It's not just growing wide and fast. It's growing incredibly deep because this is a community who are described as being devoted. They're devoted to the teaching and they're devoted to prayer and they're devoted to breaking bread and they're devoted to fellowship. So there's an incredible depth to this community as well as an incredible breadth to the community. They have a commitment to quality. They're into community life, but they also have a commitment to quantity because they're on a mission and they're growing fast. And uh, this story is a description for us of what's happening here. It's not a prescription of exactly what we should expect to be like and receive, but does present us with a model of what church can be like. And it presents us with a challenge of where their experience was so much greater than ours. And it then gives us something to dream about. Oh God, would you do it in our day? Would you add daily to our number those who are being saved? And then where are we going to pick the story up today? And God willing, plan to carry this through to Christmas, teach this the rest of the book through to Christmas. Don't mention Christmas on September the 2nd, but sorry. There you go. Where we are today, there's a sudden swerve in the narrative with what happens next. And it's a great story with which to begin the new church year. It's going to be a big, much bigger than normal passage of Scripture that I'm going to read. But as I was preparing, I thought it would be wrong to skip over any of it because... I thought that would be to shortchange us of what is going on. So I'm going to read the whole story, break it up into a little bit with some explanation, and then seek to bring some applications at the end. So Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, that's the council of the elders, looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We are introduced to Stephen a few verses before this in chapter 6, verse 5, where Stephen is described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen is one of the six people who's appointed as a deacon in the church of Jerusalem, whose job it is is to help the apostles in pastoral care of the church. There's a group of widows who aren't being looked after properly, and as a response, these six men are appointed to make sure that these women get fed and cared for, and that's uh, Stephen's role in the church. He was an impressive man. He was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. But then we get to verse 8, and it tells us not only is he someone who's full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit and caring for those in need, but he is also someone who himself is performing great wonders and signs. And that's really amazing. It's interesting because the previous description has been Acts 2.43, the apostles perform amazing signs and wonders. Now Stephen is performing amazing signs and wonders. 
And what we get here is a picture of the way in which God's gifts and God's grace are meant to expand. It's not just going to be kept amongst the 12 apostles. No, it's going to expand. Other people get to play as well. God is gracing and God is gifting, and he gifts and graces grace Stephen. And so Stephen is really kind of a, a role model of what a Christian should be like. He's, he's kind of an ideal young man. It doesn't say he's young, but I kind of imagine he was from the way, some of the description of him. He's kind of this role model of what a Christian man should be like. And there's a lesson we're about to learn here. The lesson is that even if you're full of integrity... Even if you're full of faith, even if you're full of spiritual power, opposition can still come. And sometimes success doesn't look like the way in which we would measure it. In the US, where Grace and I have just been, particularly in, to a degree here also, we tend to measure everything in a very capitalistic way in terms of what success is. And that applies to the church as well. We can easily think that success is bigger buildings and bigger budgets and more people. And if you go to the US and you go to a big church with a big campus and big budgets, that looks very successful. And it might be, and I'm not opposed to those things. Up at Alder Road, we're planning a huge building project which is going to have, require massive budgets, and we're doing that in order to get more people in. So I'm all for bigger buildings and bigger budgets and more people. But that isn't the only measure of success. And sometimes success looks nothing like that. Something success looks... Nothing like that. Because something terrible is about to happen to Stephen, and that will unleash more terrible things, but it's also going to result in some wonderful things. We're going to see God doing things in ways which we wouldn't expect, which, but which somehow are going to work for good. Chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. We're going to get into what is described as Stephen's speech. And this is a bit different, again, from what we might expect, because he doesn't seek to defend himself in the way that we might expect. He doesn't kind of give explanations for what he's doing and why he's doing it. Instead, he tells a story about how God has worked in the people of Israel for centuries. And it's a story that those he's talking to would have known extremely well. These were the teachers, the elders, the teachers of the law... These were guys who knew the story intimately. And so Stephen tells a story they knew really, really well. And it can seem, why does he do this? And why is so much of the book of Acts taken up with this story? It's because the story is really important. And the story that Stephen tells condemns those who are seeking to condemn him. It's a story about how the righteous are always persecuted, about how those who are faithful towards God, always get persecuted by those who are not, but how God always works out his purposes nonetheless. That's what the story is about. So keep your ears pinned back to hear that as we go through it. Stephen goes on, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. The story of God working with his people is a story of obedience. There is where it begins. God calls Abraham, and Abraham goes not knowing the place to which God has called him. And this is the point. The people are meant to be obedient to God, but the people who put Stephen on trial are not 
being obedient to God because they are rejecting Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting the whole story upon which their story is meant to be built. Verse 4, So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. When God called Abraham to leave his home and go into this new country, initially God didn't give Abraham any land, not even enough land on which to stand his foot, but he did give him the covenant of circumcision. And you might think, well, what on earth is that about? It's not how we would have planned it. Abraham goes expecting land and gets circumcision. It doesn't seem a very fair deal. I mean, if you sent the pioneers out from St. Louis to go out into the West, what they were expecting was some acres of California, not circumcision. What you want is land, not circumcision. It seems a very strange story. But what circumcision represents, it's a physical representation that This people, Abraham and his descendants, were set apart, cut off for God. And why is that? It's because God himself actually was Abraham's true inheritance. The real inheritance is not the land. The real inheritance is God. And it was God that Abraham was pursuing, over and beyond any kind of physical rewards. And God's people, as they seek to obey him, are promised hardship. God says to Abraham, look, you're going to go and your descendants are going to suffer. They're going to become slaves in in Egypt. And again, what's, what's going on there? Well, the point is that knowing God is the prize. Knowing God is the prize. Knowing God is, is worth going through anything for. If you, can, if you know God, if you find Jesus as the pearl of great price, if you find that actually he is, he's the one to sell all else for, he's the one to obtain over and above all else, that is the ultimate treasure. That's, that's winning. And Abraham knew that and was obedient to God. Verse 9, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Now, There's a clue here about what the whole story is about. But Joseph, you know the story, you've seen the musical, you've sung the songs. Joseph was thrown by his brothers into a well. They were jealous of him and his amazing technicolor dream coat, of his father's special love for him. And then he was sold as a slave into Egypt. And the point is, Joseph was persecuted not by outsiders. Joseph was persecuted by his own family. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Jesus was rejected by his own people, the people of Israel. And now it's what's happening to Stephen. Stephen, as a servant of Jesus, is going to be rejected by his own brothers, his own people. 
Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was no that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. When a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt... He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was hidden, cared for by his family, and when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. The story that Stephen is telling really begins to ramp up when he gets to the story of Moses because the focus becomes all about the continual rebellion of God's people against God and against God's way. Moses is the hero of the story, but the people of Israel rejected him. Who are you to be ruler and judge over us? It's what God's people do again and again. After 40 years have passed, An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. 
That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David to enjoy God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Whoa. Stephen's saying to them, you've got the trappings, you've got circumcision, the sign of the covenant, you've got the temple here, but you reject the reality. You rebelled against Moses, and Jesus is the greater Moses. You rebelled despite having the tabernacle, the tent of God's presence with you, and Jesus is the greater tabernacle. You rebelled against God despite him being Lord and creator of all the earth. You are a stiff next people. You're just the same. You think you're righteous, but you're no better than the Egyptians. You're no better than the Romans. You're no better than any rabble of idol worshippers. You're no better than those who rejected Moses. You might be physically circumcised, but nothing has changed in your cold, stony hearts. And worst of all, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And there is no more serious accusation that can be brought against those who profess to follow God than this. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What Stephen does is, in telling the story, not the kind of defense we might expect, but it's actually a more effective defense than the most high-powered barrister could have mounted. It's a devastating analysis of their failure to believe and follow the story, even though they knew it so well. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing 
of him. Here we have the murder of Stephen and the appearing of Saul. And it looks like the end. It's the end of Stephen. It looks like it's going to be the end of the church in Jerusalem. But actually it's a beginning. It says here, we shouldn't miss it, Stephen fell asleep. It doesn't just say Stephen died. A few weeks back, we talked about sleep and death and referenced some of this stuff. And it's significant that it says that Stephen fell asleep. Why? Because actually Stephen wasn't just a life extinguished, but he was a seed being planted. This was a terrible moment. but It was a moment that was going to reap incredible fruit. And then we get Saul appearing. And Saul's somewhat to the side, but also somehow at the lead. He doesn't read like Saul's there picking up the stones and throwing them himself, but somehow he's in charge of what's going on. The people involved make sure their stuff is looked after as they're killing Stephen. Saul looks after it, and he, he's there approving of what they do. And it's this kind of somewhat enigmatic, shadowy figure at this point. He's there goading them on to kill Stephen while himself holding back somewhat. He's, he's the villain of the story, but Saul is going to become the hero of the story. And so even at the lowest point for the church in Jerusalem, God is actually planning salvation and deliverance. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. But those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Death of Stephen looks like the end, but hang on. It's actually a beginning. You see, the gospel was always meant to go out beyond Jerusalem, Those were Jesus' parting words to his disciples. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts tells this story about the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And that story wouldn't have happened without the death of Stephen. Without Stephen's death, the church wouldn't have suddenly exploded out into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth in the way in which it did. What looks like an end is actually, miraculously, a beginning. Now let me just take a few minutes to bring some applications out of this story to us. First application is don't resist the Holy Spirit. The Sanhedrin, the synagogue of the freedmen, the elders, the teachers of the law, they all thought they were custodians of the story of what God had done in the people of Israel. But they hadn't seen what the story was really about because they hadn't recognized Jesus for who he really was. And the tragic reality is that it's easy to have the trappings of faith but lose the reality of faith. These men had all the trappings. They had the temple, they had circumcision, they had their history, but they didn't have the reality of faith. And the church today needs to be constantly renewed. We need to keep looking for the new thing that God is doing. As has often been said, there's a big big difference between tradition and traditionalism. 
Tradition is the living faith of the dead, whereas traditionalism is a dead faith of the living. And what we need is not dead traditionalism. We hold on to traditions which feed us. What we need is, is actually to be renewed. And as we start this new church year, we need to keep looking for the new thing that God wants to do amongst us. What fresh things does God want to do here at Gateway Church in this next season? And this is the reason why we're gathering these three Sunday evenings to worship and be in the presence of God. It's why we are gathering to pray on Friday morning. It's because we're not just doing traditional things. We're doing things which help put us in a place where we can hear God leading us, hear the Holy Spirit, and be led into the new things that he has for us. May it never be said of us that we resist the Holy Spirit. Second application is that we do need to know the story. Stephen tells a story they knew. He told it to condemn them, and the story explains why they were condemned, because the story was all about Jesus. It's a story about how people who should have been obedient to God again and again rebelled against God. Now, we need to know the story of what God has done too. We, we don't get to make up our own version of the story of what God has done in the earth. We need to know the story. We need to know the story that's described for us in Scripture, the story of God's purposes and working through the ages. And we need to know the story of how God has worked through his church. We need to have a sense of history or we're going to get untethered and unmoored and blown around. There's all kinds of challenges we face in our society, in our culture, which are different from the challenges of previous generations. And if we're to stay steady and not get blown off course, we, we need to know the story in the same kind of way that Stephen did. If you've got no sense of family history, it's hard to stay for the sense of connection with your family. I don't think it's the case for any of us in here, but there are still those families in the UK who can trace their ancestry back to 1066. My ancestor came across with William the Conqueror and he gave us this land and we've been here ever since. And Imagine what that must be like, the sense of place it must give you and personhood and possession. We've been here for a thousand years. This place belongs to us. We've got a story to tell. It must give you such a sense of kind of security. That's why the aristocracy have held on to power so long. It's not just the stuff they own. It's the sense of personal confidence because of that story they can tell. Now, that isn't a story any of us in this room share, and I guess most of us couldn't tell a story of our family beyond a generation or two further back. But those of us who follow Jesus need to learn this story spiritually. Our sense of place and personhood and possession, who we are in Christ. We've got a far greater story to tell than some Duke who can trace his ancestry back to 1066. We've got a story of what it is to belong to the people of God, to be united with Christ to be caught up in his eternal plan and purpose and destiny. And we need to learn that story, which means we need to know the Bible. We need to read it. It means we should study church history and learn what God has done through the ages. But it means knowing the story in the way that Stephen did, which means being genuinely submitted to it, not knowing it like the establishment did. They knew the story. They knew nothing of its power. They missed its whole point. The third thing we can apply is to see that we need to expect God to work through the unexpected. Now, 
The apostles in Jerusalem knew that they were called to take the gospel not just to Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And perhaps they were beginning to think about how that might happen. I guess probably they were just too busy. There were people being added to their number every day. There are thousands of them. I guess they were just so overwhelmed by the work. They were just thinking about how they did the mission in Jerusalem, never mind the rest of the world. And then God, in a most unexpected and in a most unwelcome way, suddenly intervenes. Who would have planned Stephen being killed as a means of gospel expansion? I mean, he's the most outstanding young man in the whole church in Jerusalem. He's the man that every mother is hoping her daughter will marry. He's the perfect model of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And he's the one who gets killed. It's not what we would have planned. Often God does things in ways which seem very haphazard to us. This seems haphazard. Now we make our plans, and it's important that we do. This uh, Friday and Saturday, the elders and a bunch of other guys are away together. We do an annual retreat where we pray, seek God together, and plan for the coming year. It's important that we do that. It's good to have plans. But we must always be ready for God to interrupt our plans. And if that means our plans change, that shouldn't just be changing our minds. You know, it's, it's not good to change your plans if it's just, you're just blowing in the wind and spinning from idea to idea. But it is essential to change our plans if we're following the lead of the Holy Spirit and suddenly, unexpectedly, haphazardly, he does something which causes us to realize, hey, things need to change here. Expect God to work through the unexpected. Fourth thing is to see that bad things happen to good people. On a personal level, this story can seem just completely unfair. Of all the people who are going to get put to death by being stoned, and just think about that. I mean, we read it and it kind of skim over it, but imagine what it would be like to die by being stoned. It must have been an absolutely horrific death. It would have taken a long time. Imagine how many times you've had to be clubbed with a stone actually to be rendered unconscious. Think about the, the bleeding and the broken bones and the smashed teeth. and all it, it must have been utterly horrendous to die by stoning. And why of all people does Stephen die? And why does he die that way? Because Stephen was as good as it gets. Why is it the good people who suffer? In our own experience, I'm sure you can think of examples of this. I think of people even in our own fellowship, people who... Good people, faithful people, loving people always seem to have sought to follow Jesus and yet often there's a sense of kind of misfortune that follows them in terms of bad stuff happens and you can think this is, just feels unfair. Why, why them? Why, 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 why is he thriving when she's suffering like that? It just seems unfair. And then on the church level, you know, there are days when I feel pretty low about stuff and think, God, why, why, why does it feel as hard as it does? There are days like that. Why, why does being a Christian feel as hard as it does today? Why does leading a church feel as hard as it does today? I have those days. And you know, the history of the church is a repeating story of the darkness apparently closing in and then suddenly light breaking forth. Because in the church, sometimes winning can look like losing. Sometimes what looks like loss actually can be victory. 
And Stephen's death looked like a loss. It was. It says that godly men buried him. They mourned for him deeply. They were trauma-struck by the death of Stephen. It was a cause of great mourning. But Stephen's death was also a cause of great advance. And so... When we look around us and see bad things happening to good people, often that is confusing, often it's mysterious, often we can't understand what's going on, often it just looks downright unfair, but we need to have a bigger sense of what God might be doing. What might God be doing? Fifth thing is to see that we are then to have confidence in the eternal. You know, we, those of us who are Christians, we can treat our faith like we treat everything else. It's basically living for now, and so if our Christianity is seems to be working today, well, then we're going to keep being Christians. But when it gets hard, maybe not so much. Now, if we're not going to fall into that terrible way of living, we need a bigger vision. And as we look at the example of Stephen, we see a man who was not doubtful about his destiny. He had confidence about his eternity. At the moment of his death, he looks up and he has this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He's confident about his eternal place with God. And our Christianity cannot just be pie-in-the-sky sentimentality. If our Christianity is just something which kind of feels good today while today's working and is kind of a bit of a sentimental hope, that's not enough to sustain us. When the rocks start flying, that won't sustain us. What we need is to have true, real confidence in the eternal, that the Lord really does hold us secure, no matter what, forever. It's that kind of faith which will keep us pressing on. And the last thing is to see that God has a way of bringing life out of death. Stephen was a seed planted, not a body destroyed. His death itself was actually a declaration of hope, of resurrection to new life. We Christians, we are citizens of this upside-down kingdom where winning can look like losing, where leadership looks like serving, where everything's different from how the world organizes it, where success doesn't always look in the way that we categorize it as human beings. And at this point in the story, as we read this story, we'd all be cheering for Stephen and we'd all be booing against Saul because Stephen's the hero and Saul's the villain but just you wait God has an amazing way of bringing life out of death and that's what's going to happen those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went just wait for the rest of the story wait for the next chapters of the book of Acts it's dynamite stuff It's amazing what God did. Life out of death, resurrection, eternal hope. Hallelujah. And so as we start this new term, let's be like Stephen. Let's be men and women full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of confidence in God, dreaming of what God might do here, looking for success. We don't feel it as we might expect it or define it. Still trusting God that he's working because Jesus is advancing his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we pray for us as we begin this new 
turn this new season of church life. I pray as we've still got people coming back from holiday and as we, many in this room, get their kids ready to go back to school and some have got new beginnings and anxieties about that. And Lord, as we see summer fading and we uh, anticipate things are going to come in the autumn, Lord, I pray that we would be people who trust you. I pray that we would be those who know the story, who really live the story, hold on to it, believe it. I pray that we'd prove faithful as you have proved faithful to us. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. Lord, we want, Lord, it's a dream, Jesus, that, yes, day by day, people might be added to our number who come to faith in you, who believe in you. Lord, I pray for that. I pray we'd see more of that. Lord, I pray for Ian and Lindsay as they start uh, Glasgow Grace Church, as they have that gathering this morning. Lord, bless them. May there be, day by day, those who are added to their number there in Glasgow. It's what we're looking for, Jesus. We, we dare to ask for it. And Lord, we, we know that at times that will mean you work in us and do things in a way which we wouldn't expect and maybe wouldn't even want. But we say we trust you. We believe that you are good. You will do us good, ultimately, eternally. And we lay hold of that and express our faith and trust in you and ask your rich blessing to be poured out on us for the sake of the gospel mm. and the glory of your name. And all God's people said, Amen.